talking and it don't make sense Tell me what it's all about The truth is stranger the closer you get To the who, what, where, when, how Absurd is the word, guess what I heard Absurd is the word, guess what I heard Guess what I heard Guess what I heard Hey guys, this is Know What I Heard. I'm Jamie, and this episode is all about farming. My good friend Caleb Noonan joins me. He is a farmer. He grows soybeans and corn in eastern Missouri. He's also one of my very best friends. I've known him since high school, and he was my junior prom date. So, mm-hmm. um, but anyway, I'm a Midwest girl surrounded by farms and don't know shit about farming. So wanted to learn some more about it. I reached out to Caleb. He was nice enough to join me for this episode. And I apologize for the audio quality. I don't know what happened on this one, but it sounds like Caleb is walking on crunching leaves the entire time. And halfway through, it sounds like I start talking into a fan. So I apologize Um, I hope that you guys can learn a little bit more about farming. We all rely on it. They are essential to us eating and for all kinds of other products that the, the crops that they grow go into. So thank a farmer and, um, I hope you enjoy this episode. All right. Well, you ready to just dive right into this? Yeah, let's do this thing. Basically, I grew up in Missouri, live in Missouri again, surrounded by crops, surrounded by farms, and I don't know shit about farming. (laughs) And I feel like a bad Midwesterner. So I want you to tell me all about farming. So kind of to preface all this, like growing up, we had the family farm and I went out there and dicked around as a kid and helped with. You know, little shit where I couldn't tear anything up and cost grandpa any money. Worked in ag retail for years and then moved to production farming and didn't realize how very little I knew. Hmm. I was like, "Eh, it's farming. It's easy. This shit's simple. No, no, it's not. Not at all. Like, how did you decide that farming is what you wanted to, to do for a living? Well, I got to the point where I realized retail management was not where I wanted to be. At the the buckle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me at the buckle. (laughs) (laughs) You know me. I can recommend skinny jeans to the best of them. Right? (laughs) I got remarried and my father-in-law farmed and he had mentioned at one point, hey, I'm getting older. I'd like to retire someday. If it's something that would interest you, let me know. If not, no big deal. So it was a complete you know, pressure-free situation. And I just got to the point where in retail, you're, you're kind of a slave to the business. And I was like, I'm, I've had enough. I'm tired of being here 80 hours a week and dealing with people that are mad all the time. So I was like, screw it. Let's try it. We'll give it a try. If it doesn't work, we'll do something else. But you know, at, at this point I'm, I'm ready for a change. It has allowed me a lot more time to spend with my oldest daughter that doesn't live with us. Because even during the busy season, she can jump in the tractor, ride with me when we're planting, 
during harvest, she can ride with me in the semi. It's allowed a lot more family time. And that was one of the things that was frustrating in my previous career path. There, that time just wasn't there. That alone has made the, the transition, you know, worth the worry and the headaches and everything else that come with this job. But you're going to have a certain amount of that no matter what you do. Does she show any interest in wanting to farm? She's 16. She doesn't know what the hell she wants to do. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, I just want to sleep in. Yeah, it's like one Shit. day, I want to work for the conservation department, and then I want to be a graphic designer. I could farm. Hey, you know what? Call me back when you're 25. <laughs> right. Well, I'm glad that you found something that you enjoy. I know a lot of farmers. I don't know much about farming, but I do know a lot of farmers. It's like they they couldn't see themselves doing anything else. Oh, yeah. So do you I kind mean, of this, feel that way? Yeah, at this point, I'm not. I don't see me doing anything else. I would say I'm kind of too used to my schedule I have now and the flexibility I have within my life to have somebody else dictate my every move. Sure that. So what kind of farming do you do specifically? Our operation is strictly row crop, corn and soybeans. We, to the best of our ability, try to try to rotate everything. Uh, but being in the river bottoms, a lot of times Mother Nature makes decisions for us. So if we, you know, have acreage that we want to go to corn to stay in rotation and it's underwater until late May, that's obviously going to go to beans at that point. So is it something that you alternate yearly? For the most part, we've got some ground that is a little better where we'll go two years corn, one year beans. Gotcha. And what's the reasoning? Like, why do you switch it up? Uh, multiple reasons. Uh, one, beans to a point, they're a nitrogen fixing plant. We'll actually put some nitrogen back into the soil, which you want for the following corn crop. Uh, but more than anything anymore with weed resistance, you're looking at completely different chemistries for corn versus beans. And if you go you know, bean after bean after bean after bean, you're going to wind up with the resistant weeds you can't kill in those beans, where if you stay on a steady rotation, you're constantly using different chemistries. So you're you're killing those plants and not getting that resistance. Gotcha. Let's say I had a thousand acres and I decided okay. that I wanted to start farming. Like, what is that? What does that process look like to just have some land and want to grow crops on it. Well, I mean, if you own the land outright, and you're not making payments on it. You're a huge step forward in the game. Um, or you're not paying cash rent, not making a land payment. But the equipment costs associated with, I mean, especially farming a thousand acres, that's not a, not a huge farm, not a small farm. You're going to need a decent amount of equipment. And it's funny, me and uh, the neighbor that I farm with, he was playing around on John Deere's website the other night with the new, uh, brand new X-Series combines. They, they got a program where you can design your own combine, then it gives you a price at the end. So he did the biggest one with every option imaginable. I mean, anything they have as an option, he put on it. With a 40-foot flex draper head, a 16-row folding corn head, was going to be north of a million dollars. Jesus. <laughs> I, but there is there's used equipment out there that's much 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 more reasonable. I, I feel like they're just building those particular units for a lease market. I don't see how 
unless you own thousands upon thousands of acres, you can ever ever justify that. You'd have to cycle trade them every single year to not have your machine lose value, or you can afford that jump into the newest thing. Wow, that's nuts. Yeah, it's it's like anything you can you can spend yourself to death if you want to, but if you're know what you're looking for and patient and wait to find the right deal, you're going to save yourself a lot of money. Like if you were just starting out, I mean, I, I see the signs for all the different seed companies and different things. What What is that process like? Really with seed companies, it kind of comes just naturally to go with whatever the generation before you used. Okay. Uh, we plant a lot of pioneer corn. My father-in-law's always liked pioneer corn. My neighbor that I farm with, they plant a lot of decal because his dad's always been a decal guy. And you don't see quite the the gap in quality that there used to be because the sciences came so far that everybody's, you know, moved forward leaps and bounds in, in terms of putting out a quality product with good agronomics that's going to have a good yield. But, I mean, it really all comes down to preference and research and... uh and figuring out what's going to suit your needs, where you're at, and where you can get the best deal and still expect a good yield. I mean, it doesn't do you any good to save a bunch of money on seed and make 120 bushel corn versus 200 bushel corn. Right. So whenever, so like if you're using Pioneer, what what is that relationship like with the seed company? Oh, we've got a great relationship with our, our seed dealer. Um you know, he'll he'll check on us throughout the season, call us, let us know, hey, you know, right now we've got such and such deal on seed. It runs out on this date. You know, if, if you know you're going to need a certain amount of this or that for next year, let's go ahead and get it on the book so you can save, you know, 20, 25 percent, whatever, the, you know, whatever the case may be. Each seed company has got its own preseason sale, I guess is the best way to put it. Huh. And there'll be different windows that say the first window ends November 1st and you got November 1st to the end of December, January 1st to the end of March. And then by the time you get to planting season, those deals are pretty well gone. <laughs> so the more that you can, you can take care of early, the better, the better off you're going to be financially. So is it like a contract that you have to sign for so many years or is it just each year you contact them and like, yo, I need some seeds. I mean, unless you're doing something, other than just buying seed, um, some seed dealers will help you, say, buy row clutches to put on your planter or a GPS system. Some seed companies came out and been like, hey, you know, if you buy my product for five years, we'll give you a truck. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, that's, we never did that. It seemed, if anything seems too good to be true, it typically is. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, they do have some programs where it's like, hey, I need you to commit for the next three years to buy my corn seed, my seed corn. And then at that point, I hope you put row clutches on your plant hmm. or they'll have a, a dollar threshold you have to meet across three or five years for them to, you know, help you with that upgrade. And so at the beginning of the season, do they like deliver the seed to you? Is it something you have to go pick up or? The one dealer that we use, uh, the Pioneer dealer, he delivers out all seed corn to us. And then as we get into planting beans, we'll coordinate with him and be like, Hey, you know, this upcoming week, we're going to need 200 units of such and such bean. And we want them treated with this, this, and this, and he'll treat them on site right there at, at his seed shed. 
put them in his bulk tender, bring them out, dump them off into our tender, and then we're off and running. Um, another dealer we deal with, it's a smaller dealer. It's more of a you know mom and pop type deal, I guess you'd call it. He doesn't have as much equipment or the logistical capabilities to do that. So we go to him. It's eight miles away. It's not a big deal. Um, but like with him, he's got a, a tender he lets us use. So we just go up there, put it in his tender, drive it out, plant the beans, go back, get more. Swipe left or right. Yep. <laughs> um. So can you kind of walk me through, like, I, I kind of want to know your, your daily schedule, but also I'm curious just about like what your, your annual kind of timeline is like. So annual timeline, sometime between the end of March to mid-April, just depending on weather, we'll go in and start field cultivating ground that we have ripped or chiseled the fall prior to get that ground ready for anhydrous, which is your nitrogen and gas form. Um, so we'll get that ground leveled off. So we'll come in, put the anhydrous on. We'll field cultivate or disc it again, plant. Uh, we'll have some ground that we didn't work the fall before, and we'll go in. We'll have them put anhydrous on, and we'll disc it, plant it. In a perfect world, we'd get done with corn, move to beans. It doesn't always work that way. Um, maybe uh, where we start off dry, then we get wet. We've already got anhydrous on this field, so it's going to corn. But we're not somewhere else that's going to beans. You go there, plant beans, switch your planter back over, back and forth. But typically, somewhere in April to late June is kind of our planning window. We'll go as late as second week of July on beans if we absolutely have to. We don't want to go that long, but we will if we need to. So after that, we're, you know, already thinking towards harvest. You know, what do we got to get ready? What do we got to do? What contracts do we need to fill? What bins need emptied out? Um, so you're, you're constantly just planning for the next season, you know, as, as you're doing everything in the spring, you're thinking about summer, as you're doing everything in summer, you're thinking about fall. You know, as you're doing everything in the fall, you're thinking about fall tillage. Once fall tillage is done, what do we need to do through the winter to get ready for spring? Uh, so it's just a nonstop rotation of thinking of the next step as you're doing the current one. Right. Once you get done in the spring, you hit summer, you're fixing stuff, you're hauling grain, you're getting the bins emptied out, making sure you got the combine, the headers ready, semis are ready, the hopper bottoms are in good shape, and everything's ready to rock and roll. And preferably before harvest starts, you're also getting all your fall tillage equipment in shape and ready so that as soon as harvest is over, if conditions are right, you can immediately go into fall tillage. <laughs> and then winter's kind of our... Our chill time, our relaxed time, you know, we've got projects we need to do, but they're not, you know, anything that has to be done by tomorrow when it's two degrees outside. <laughs> right. So that's that's when I sneak away and go down south and duck hunt and deer hunt and duck hunt up here. And that, that's my that's my play time of year. It's It changes with, with the time of year, what you're doing each day, but what's kind of a, a normal day for you? I hear lately, you know, get up in the morning. Recently, we've been hauling grain to town out of the bin, so we've got that bin space available for this year. Usually, when we get done, the elevator had been closing at 4, so we would get everything hauled in. We could by 4, fill up the remaining trucks, get up the next morning, start taking trucks off, go back, load them up, take them to town. Uh, intermittently in there, had our John Deere mechanic out working on the combine. We've got three, four hours left of work to have it ready to go. Harvest and planting are the 
the big time consuming parts of the year. That's where, depending on, especially what weather's coming at you or what weather you've had, you know, you may be getting up well before light and going to bed well after dark. You know, if we've got a bunch of corn left to shell and we've got a, you know, three inch rain coming, we're going to do everything we can to get it out before that happens. Right. Or with us being at, or with us being in the bottoms, uh, 2018, we had a ton of flooding that fall and, you know, neighbors were helping neighbors try to get stuff out that, you know, was either definitely going to be flooded or had the possibility to get flooded. Uh, we had a neighbor dropped off cutting his own stuff and came help get everything out because we were cutting beans in standing water. Wow. So, I mean, and that's the cool thing about the farming community. They all get it, you know, and if all their stuff's on high ground, they got nothing to worry about. They're, they're going to drop off and come help you. And then when everything's said and done, you go help them and everything's right in the world. Right. So there's not a lot of competition like in the farming. Oh, there's a lot of competition. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a lot of competition. But when it, when it comes down to it, you know, a neighbor that you're friendly with, even if you may be in competition trying to rent this next piece of ground, if if they see you're in a bad way and they can help and they understand the situation, they're going to come help you. Gotcha. So can you kind of like, again, I see all this equipment all the time and like my house is literally surrounded by farmland. And so I see, you know, the combine come in and the trucks and whatever, but I don't know what's happening. <laughs> And sometimes a helicopter flies over and sprays chemicals, and I just hope I am not just breathing that shit right in. Well, most of the time, anything out of a helicopter is just going to be fungicide, so you're okay. Oh, okay. okay. Well, that's good. But can you kind of talk about, like, the equipment that you have and, I guess, you know, what you need to be able to do your job and, like, what it does? And kind of maybe talk about how much it costs, because I, I don't think people realize how much farm equipment costs oh yeah i mean if you were to want to start farming and go buy everything new by ground by new equipment you know you would you would have to start off as like a powerball winner to make that happen myself my brother-in-law my neighbor i farm with we're all fairly close in age and we're all super lucky that we have someone that got us into it that was already going that you know we're able to baby step into it and not just have to try to bite all this off on our own Otherwise, like I said, you just, outside of being, you know, a millionaire, you're not just going to buy your way into farming. It's not going right. to happen. We run older equipment than some people do, uh, which allows us to be more profitable at the end of it. We run older, but in good shape equipment, because you can run older equipment that at the end of the day is going to cost you more because you're always fixing mm -hmm. it. Uh, and that's what I kind of referred to earlier, where if you take your time. You know, really, really do your homework before you make a purchase. You can save yourself a ton of money. But we, uh, as far as tillage equipment for disking, ripping, chiseling, field cultivating, we've got three articulating four-wheel drive tractors that we use for all of that, all that work. Those are going to be your bigger horsepower tractors where we can get across more ground faster. And that's just to, to till the land, basically, to get it ready for planting. Yep. Like tilling a garden kind of. Yep. Okay. Yep. That's for either getting it ready in the spring or doing your, your fall tillage, which is a deeper tillage to break the hard pan. So you don't, so the roots aren't getting down so far and then just kind of hitting, you know, a, a hard spot they can't penetrate past. Gotcha. So then planner wise, um, we run a, a Kenzie 1223 
which when you're planting corns, you've got 12 30-inch rows. When you're planting beans, you let the front units down, and you've got 23 15-inch rows. Uh, that planter's 30 foot wide. Uh, we also, when we get into beans, if we feel like we're a little behind or want to get a step ahead, we've got a, a, a 750 John Deere drill that we'll, we'll pull out and we'll drill some beans alongside to keep things moving. Harvest equipment, we've got a uh, 9650 STS John Deere combine, 30 foot, 30 foot bean head, eight row corn head. We use one of the articulating four-wheel drives to pull the auger cart, uh, 875 bushel cart. And then we've got three semis, three hopper bottom trailers, and that's basically the equipment lineup. Can you kind of explain what a combine does again? How I how I live here. <laughs> Did you just get really embarrassed? I mean, You're like Jesus, Jamie. No, no, it's all right. I would rather somebody ask the questions and just kind of assume they know what's up. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the simplest way to put a combine is it's going to go in the field, cut the plant, remove the seed from the plant, which is your corn or your soybean. It's going to separate it to where all you have is just the grain, and then you can take that grain to town and sell it. So what happens with like the stalk and the husks? Is it just left in the field? That all gets chopped up and blown out the back. Oh, fun. Yeah, which there is a lot of nutrient value to what gets blown out the back. Uh, if you were to take and remove all that from from the field, so that guys that will bale their corn stalks, they're going to have to put more fertilizer on the next year because they've lost the nutrient value of that plant refuse. Okay. That kind of gets ground into the, when you're tilling in the fall, kind of gets worked down into the soil. And acts yep. fertilizer. And we'll typically only, it'll act as part of it, but typically we only do fall tillage on ground that's going to go to corn the next year. We no-till a lot of our soybean acres, uh, typically into corn stalks. Gotcha. Uh, it just, it just works out best that way. We do spring tillage on some soybean acres, just kind of depending on what the, what the situation may be. If we've had a wet spring and the weeds have got ahead of us, then, you know, we're going to go in there and, and diss that ground and get those weeds knocked down and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So if you were to go buy just a standard combine, how much would that run you? That could run you anywhere from, I mean, if you're talking something in the 2000s, anywhere from 40000 to 300000 And that, like, I mean, just astonishes me. Like, Whenever I've had it kind of broken down the cost, I'm like, how do you make any money farming? I mean, basically, you kind of have to approach it from one of two ways. You either have to try to be a low-cost producer or cover so many acres that as long as you're making a little bit on each acre, then it adds up at the end. Hmm. And we're more on that, try to stay on that low-cost side without sacrificing quality. Right. I mean, you don't you don't have to if you're not comfortable, but can you talk a little bit about like what revenue is generally like it varies so wild so wildly from year to year you can't it, it's it's very unpredictable based off the weather based off the markets based off you know just a big breakdown you know and if the hydrostat goes out on your combine then all of a sudden you've got you know twenty thousand dollars going out you weren't anticipating right so it's just i mean it, to try to 
to guess would be throwing a dart at a board. You know, you had guys back in 2012 during the drought that just made a killing. And then four years later, prices are in the toilet. And, you know, now you're trying to figure out where can I cut some costs? You know, what am I not going to upgrade that I'd like to to keep the wheels from falling off? Right. And you've got to be cognizant of that with every, you know, decision you make. Like, you know, this year it was very wet year. We're like, okay, do we or do we not fungicide this corn? Because fungicide's expensive. Uh, with corn, it goes on by plane. Plane's more expensive than a ground rig. So, so you really have to break it down and say, okay, at the current price, how many bushels do I have to gain for this to just pay for itself? And you break it down, you break it down that way. You know, you talk to the chemical rep, people that have used it, whatever. You know, and if you're looking at, I need three more bushel to break even on this. And like, yeah, we typically see a four to six bushel bump. You know, then you're you're pretty confident making that decision and saying this is something that's going to at least pay for itself. You have crop insurance. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so many different factors that can go into, you know, affecting the outcome of the crops. Can you kind of explain that a little bit? Because I kind of thought it was like if you had a shit year, you were just done. So can you kind of explain what, what the crop insurance is? To a point. I'm I'm not an expert on it by any means, but... Um, well, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I do what I can, Jamie. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. Ed- we had the same high school education. We're not the smartest people. That's true. I didn't mean to <laughs> yell at you. I'm really sorry. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I mean, for instance, last year, we had a lot of ground that was underwater till August. I mean, it never got planted. Nothing ever happened with it. There was just no opportunity to do anything. Um, so at that point, you know, we we take what's called prevent plant. You don't plant the ground. And so this is where it gets kind of convoluted and hard to follow. So let's say you're insuring that ground at 70%. So that 70% is your APH, which is a 10-year average of that commodity on that ground. So just for fun, to make the numbers easy, let's call it 100. So at that point, if that ground was planted and it was a total loss, you would get paid for 70 bushels. Okay. Whereas over the last 10 years, your average has been 100. So right there, you're automatically, you know, knocked down. Right. Now, when you go to prevent plant, and I don't remember what the percentages are exactly, they change from time to time. Uh, But I think this year, corn with prevent plant, you get 60% of the 70%. Interesting. It's basically there as a safety net. It's not there as a money-making tool to say, oh, I'm not going to plan anything this year and cash this big check. Well, it's not going to be that big a check. It's going to be enough to hopefully let you pay your bills and try again next year. Right. Yeah. You know, and that's that's kind of where crop insurance came from to where, you know, if you had one bad year, you weren't out of the game. Yeah. What What are some of the, like, the biggest risks that come with farming? Like, I mean, obviously weather and different things, but like, what are the things that can ruin a year for you for us where we're at it's flooding um you know i'm situated right between the salt river and the mississippi river so i mean we've we've experienced in the last 10 years some pretty significant flood events last year we were not very far away from 93 levels on the river where we're at wow yeah like i said we had a ton of ground underwater that spring some of it the water came off to where we could where we got in late and planted beans, other like the conservation area we farm was underwater till August. You know, at that point you're you're just done. 
there's there's no doing anything with that um so flooding for us as far as a you know weather situation is is our biggest risk um but there again let's say you have a, a wet year where you get the beans in late and then you get an early frost also not good those beans haven't matured to their potential now they're dead you're going to combine them you're, you're going to get some beans the grain quality is not going to be as good the yield's not going to be as good we don't have a lot of issues around here with hail. Other parts of the country, you know, hail can just decimate a crop. Um, I mean, this year in Iowa, they had uh, basically like an inland hurricane that destroyed millions of acres of crops in Iowa to where some of it, there's, there's no opportunity to harvest. They've just got to disc it under and, and move on. Uh, and, and one thing a lot of people don't think about, the, the political landscape seems to affect our markets a lot. <laughs> This whole deal with China, that that was just wildly detrimental to our markets, uh, which the government did come out with some, I mean, stimulus-style packages to, to help offset that. They called a market facilitation program. But, I mean, you know, we went from selling $10, $11 beans to, you know, if you made some bad contracts like I did, you were down to your seven seventy five. Wow. Which we're starting to, we're starting to see that market bounce back especially in the last oh the last two months really we've been on a, a pretty steady rally moving in the right direction which has been unexpected it's made marketing difficult when nobody saw this coming <laughs> um you know you were selling contracts and thinking wow i did really good now shit it's 50 cents higher than it was i screwed up <laughs> <laughs> yeah this has been one year it's been you know super handy to procrastinate <laughs> good, job. good job look at you yeah, so I mean that uh you know and there and there's a lot of outside influences on these commodity markets that you know you would think it's just hey supply and demand do we need more corn okay corn goes up but there's there's so much more that goes into it and I'm not educated enough to speak well on that situation um that's why I have people that when I go to make a marketing decision I call them and say hey what do you think gather some opinions and you know either pull the trigger or don't and live with the consequences yeah. So when you say you're making the contracts, is that where you're selling? Yeah, you can you can either have some sort of contract on that grain or you can just haul it to the elevator and get whatever they're paying that day for it. And there's so many different types of contracts that there's a lot of them I don't understand with selling puts and calls and doing different things. Um, we're, we're pretty basic when it comes to marketing. We'll do you know either a basis contract, a, a flat cash contract. Did a little bit with some accumulator contracts, but there's that gets so in depth you could make it a full time job just marketing grain. <laughs> and there are people that do that that basically you know day trade grain. Um, there are other farmers I know that don't do any of their own marketing. They have a firm that handles it, and they tell them their anticipated bushels for the year, and you know that's what they they run with, and they do all their marketing for them. <laughs> but it's uh. I don't know. You basically have to get in your head where you're profitable at. If you're selling above that, be happy with it. But you never are if it goes beyond that once you've sold. Right. So do you have a lot of issues with disease or bugs or anything like that? Are there other factors like that that you have to deal with? Yep. yep. And that's where the fungicide comes in. Um, that is your that is your disease fighter, is your fungicide. And which crops today are leaps and bounds ahead of where they were in having been bred to be more resistant to the common 
diseases like gray leaf spot, frog eye, northern rust, stuff like that. You've got varieties that are. I had that as a kid. Which one? Frog eye? Yeah. Yeah, man. <laughs> it was the worst. <laughs> uh, but, you know, and, and we will plant certain varieties that our rep will tell us, hey, you know, th- this thing's got wonderful yield potential, but you're going to have to fungicide it or it's going to go down <laughs> on you. So that's, you know, just one of the one part of the decision making on whether or not to plant that variety. Right. Uh, but this year where it was, you know, wet and warm, there was, you know, a myriad of different things, you know, we were finding as we were scouting. And I mean, it, it made the decision for us. Hey, we we just got to put fungicide on. I was going to say, that's part of the reason we're a little bit later this year. Uh, fungicide will make that plant stay greener longer. So it's it's going to push you back, you know, a week, 10 days. Had we not fungicided any corn, we would probably be in the field right now. Really? Yep. It's really like a day-to-day thing. Like, you could just wake up and the weather's changed or, you know, it's too dry, it's too cold, it's too early for a frost. You know what I mean? Like, there's just so many factors that play into it being, like, your dream year. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm not necessarily convinced a dream year will ever exist. Oh, it will. There's always going to be something. But yeah, you're asking about disease and bugs. Uh, We don't have as much bug issue. Uh, A few years ago, I don't know what caused it, but we had Japanese beetles like nobody had ever seen before. Which, as late as it was, was really only a concern in the beans. The corn had already pollinated, so go ahead and eat the silks. Who cares? We're done with them. But the beans... You know, you got to kind of estimate a percentage of defoliation on the plant, determine where your threshold is that you're going to spray. And I checked a field of ours, a uh, 80-acre patch, and checked it on like a Sunday. I was like, oh, you know, we're, we're less than 10%. We're good. No big deal. And talked to our field agronomist, and he was like, you need to be checking them every three to four days. He said, we're, we, you know, we're seeing things change fast. Huh. Okay, whatever. Go back on Wednesday and we're at like 35% defoliation. It's like, son of a bitch, we need to get in here right now. So there again, call my buddy with the plane, say, hey, need you right here. Spray this, kill my beetles, <laughs> move on. Um, and a lot of times we'll, I, I say take advantage, but more to make that, that cost balance itself out because insecticides extremely cheap. The plane's the expensive part. So if it makes sense at the time, put a little, you know, fold your fertilizer in there to help that plant kind of bounce back from that damage. Um, but th- that particular 80, I think we ended up having to spray three times that year. Wow. It's just everything is it's just like all these unexpected factors that you just kind of have to deal with as you go. Yeah, I mean, you just got to keep an eye on keep an eye on things and, uh, you know, react as the situation dictates. So what would an ideal year look like? Like condition wise, what would a perfect year be if you could have it? An ideal year, so we would get through harvest, it'd be dry, cool, not terribly cold, get all the fall tillage done that we want to get done. Um, we'd go through that winter with having, you know, some freezing thaw to help break up that, to help loosen up that dirt that we've turned up from deep, uh, have some moisture, but go into spring fairly dry. Get all the ground leveled off, get the anhydrous on, get it worked again, get it planted, you know, get that corn up a little way, start planting beans, catch just, you know, that perfect rain that knocks you out of the field for a few days so you can rest, gives everything a drink, get back out, finish planting beans, 
have not a terribly wet, humid summer, so you don't have a whole lot of you know fungicide worries. All the Japanese beetles have went straight to hell, so we don't have to deal with them. <laughs> you know, you're not getting so much rain that the residual you put down is getting to where it's not working and weeds are breaking through. And then just have, you know, a nice, nice, calm, relaxing harvest. And that's happened exactly how many times? I can't think of any. <laughs> I mean, it, like I said, it is what it is. I mean, even on the, the terribly challenging years, I still love what I do. I mean, it, it's got its own set of headaches and, and this, that, and the other, but I, I love it. Oh, good. Farmers are just completely undervalued, underappreciated. And um, what would, like, are there any things that you would want people to know about farming or about farmers? We're not trying to kill you. We're not. GMOs aren't bad. If GMOs were bad, every cow in this country would be dead. You know, that is the biggest feeding trial in the world. You know, if, if GMOs were causing the problems that some people want to try to portray that they cause, you know, there would be all these birth defects in cattle. There'd be cattle dead just all over the landscape. And it's just, it's, it's not, you know, are they playing God to a certain point? Yes. But is all that highly, 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 highly regulated and tested? Also, yes. You know, and if the population of the world keeps growing as it is, without GMOs, there's going to be no way to, to keep up and feed everyone. Not that many years ago, you know, if guys were raising 130 bushel corn, they were psyched. You know, now those guys are raising 200 bushel corn. And it's all through scientific advancement of the genetics, you know, being able to, to breed these plants to do what we need them to do to stay ahead. Especially if you're farming crops, like there's really no one that isn't impacted by that. I mean, if you like to eat, you should like farmers. <laughs> There are lists of all these everyday products you would never think of that a soybean goes into. There's a huge list of everyday products you would never guess that a kernel of corn goes into. It's just, you know, ridiculous how, how far spread these commodities are just through your everyday life. My wife and I are part of a group called, uh, it's through Farm Bureau. It's Young Farmers and Ranchers. And Farm Bureau does a ton with trying to educate especially kids that aren't from a farming background, what happens at a farm? You know, what these, and they'll take a bean plant and an ear of corn and say, you know, hey, wh which one of these products has this in it? None of them make any sense to have a soybean in it. So, I mean, they do a, a ton of good work, you know, trying to educate people about what farming is or what farming isn't. People think farmers are just dumbass old rednecks that drive around in a tractor and there's, you know, a lot more to it than that. You've got to be a meteorologist. You've got to be a marketer. You've got to be a chemist. You've got to be a mechanic. You know, if you're raising livestock, you got to be a, a veterinarian. You you just, you got to wear so many different hats at one time and not be an expert in all these fields, but be proficient, you know, in multiple things on a daily basis. Yeah. And have a patience, probably like nothing else. Yeah. And that, that always wears thin, especially when you work with family, it, it creates some fist fight. Some fun times. <laughs> no, we've, we haven't had any fistfights. <laughs> um, do you see, like, kind of looking in, like, the community of, of farmers that you know, do you feel like there are some younger people that you're watching get involved with farming that will be kind of the next generation? Or do you think it's something that's kind of 
tapering off in the minds of younger people? Here's the fun part. So right now we are the younger generation. You know, it's those it's those people in their, you know, I would say mid late twenties to forty that are, you know, we still get referred to as the boys. <laughs> um <laughs> the the average age of a farmer in the United States is ridiculously high. Um it's it's something people don't really ever retire from. You know, you you do it your whole life. Yeah. I'll be forty in April and I'm one of the young guns. So it's just it's just kind of funny that, you know, in this in this industry up to the point you're 40, you're, you're still a kid. Like if you were talking to somebody that was in high school or something and they were interested in farming, but were going to college, what would be some courses or, or areas of study that you would maybe kind of direct them that you think would help them with farming? Or do you think that that would even be necessary at all? Is it just kind of an experience based? I think going to any kind of higher education is always valuable. And I don't think a lot of college is necessarily what you learn in the classroom, but more the connections you make mm-hmm. and that opportunity to, you know, figure out who you are is the real value of college. And what was your major? God knows I came out of it completely different than I went into it. Um, I was ag business. Uh, and there again, it's going to depend on what school you're at. You know, if you get to a land grant university, their, their ag departments are going to be so much bigger, so much more diverse and you know, give you more opportunity for those ag specific classes. Uh, but I think at the same time, you've got to, you need to get into macro and microeconomics, really understand economics as a whole and not just what do I do with corn and beans. Right. Um, but understand kind of, you know, the global concept of economics to understand how something happening in Japan affects, you know, this field behind my house in Pike County. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, like I said, there's, you know, especially being, an ag major in school. There's there's guys that I went to school with that I will still lean on today. One of my my best friends, one of my fraternity brothers, uh, is a research entomologist for bear. So like the year we had Japanese beetles so bad, I'm like, hey dude, <laughs> I'm tired of spraying these things. You know what should I be putting down? He's like, no, you're doing it right. They're just multiple generations coming through this year. So it's it's nice to talk to somebody you know and you trust that has the knowledge base that you know isn't necessarily trying to sell you something, giving you advice. I always like getting advice from people that aren't trying to actively sell me something. Right. Somebody that doesn't somebody that doesn't have a dog in the fight, but knows their shit. You know, I've got another fraternity brother, great friend of mine that's uh he is now in the hemp business. Where? Illinois. Okay. So that's you know, that's kind of an emerging thing in agriculture right now is hemp and kinda, you know, how that's gonna look, how that's gonna affect acres because it'll it'll grow on some pretty rough acres so it's not necessarily going to take a ton of acres away from corn and soybean production but at you know some point if that really does explode you know then you're looking at you know how many acres did this take away from corn and soybeans that's that many less acres in production how's that going to affect price what's that going to do you know overall um you know is your spray guy going to be busy spraying hemp when you need him out here posting your beans you know, I mean, it just nobody knows what that's really going to look like at this point. Uh, but yeah, he went from the Illinois Department of Agriculture into the private sector on the uh, on the hemp side of things. Wow. Yeah, that's another one of those that like if you search what it's in or what can be made out of it, it's like, oh, shit, that's awesome. Well, I mean, you can make you can make biodiesel out of hemp. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy how many products that's going to go into that's going to eliminate us from having to cut trees down to make it yeah yep you know where you've got a 
a renewable resource right there that you can just, you know, again and again and again, keep planting and keep harvesting it. And I think, you know, as it becomes more of a commodity, you're going to see more and more uses for mm-hmm. it, which is great. The more, you know, the more stuff we can have a, a renewable resource of that we can tap into where we're not taking things out of the system that take decades to regrow, the better off we're going to be. Okay, so one other thing we'll touch on real quick. It's another common misconception that I hear, you know, and most of the shit we hear that fashion farmers comes from social media, from people that have honestly never stepped foot on a farm. But land rapist is one that gets thrown around, and I, I don't think what those people understand we're not buying ground and farming to say when we retire, turn around and just sell everything and have a nest egg and go sit on a beach. We're trying to have everything to where it goes to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. So this thing that we've worked so hard, you know, our adult lives on doesn't just go to somebody else. It goes to somebody in our family. It goes to somebody that's going to have the same passion for it that we have, which is why we're not out here just, you know, raping the land we're trying to do everything in a way that is sustainable and beneficial to the ground so it is there it's there and it's productive 50 years from now for our grandkids to eat you know you don't have the old mentality of farm and fence row to fence row you know we are not out here you know chisel plowing hill ground so it can we call it hill ground just ground it's you know where you're farming in the hills you you try to no-till that so that ground isn't just washing away right if you keep working it, keep working it, keep getting rains, keep washing it down the dirt, you know, at some point, all your productive soil is now in the Mississippi River and you're farming shit that's not going to grow anything. I mean, for lack of a better term, you know, conservationist of our ground to make sure that it is it's still there. It's still productive and, and viable for years to come. And the people that think people raising cows, all they do is abuse them. You know, I personally don't raise cows. The neighbors do. So I wind up dicking with cows way more than I ever thought I would. You know, I mean, I've been at the neighbor's place two o'clock in the morning in February when it's freezing fucking cold and we're giving mouth to mouth to a newborn calf. You know, if we got our jollies off on abusing shit, we'd throw it out in the cold, and let it die. No, we've got boxes set up with heat lamps, you know, so you can get that thing breathing, get it in there, get it warmed up. You know, the amount of time and effort that, you know, these people are putting into these animals, they're not there to beat on them, to abuse them, to to do anything other than provide them as comfortable a life as possible so they're as healthy as possible to raise the best calf possible. Like I, said, I just wish anybody that had a question about a farm would drive into the country, find somebody and be like, hey, can you show me around? We're going to look at you like you've got two heads for the first couple of minutes. Don't get me wrong. You know, but if you go up to somebody and say, hey, I grew up in the city. I've never seen a farm. I don't understand farms. You know, you know, I read this, you know, you know, on the news or in social media, you know, what's it really like? We'll take a minute to explain it. We're fine with that, but don't believe everything you read. Talk to a farmer. Like I said at the beginning, I'm like right in the heart of farm country. Always have been. Like I spent most of my life in Missouri and Iowa and have just always been surrounded by farms. I have family that farms and I'm clueless. So I think about somebody that grew up right in the city and has never seen a field of corn. I I don't have an excuse because I'm exposed to it all the time, but I haven't taken the time to learn. And that's really sad because, you know, I use the products that you grow. I I eat the the products that you grow and it's just so easy to get without asking any questions. And that's not fair to 
people like you that put your heart and soul and all your time into growing food for us. And it's just, I feel, I feel bad about it, Caleb. Well, I accept your apology. <laughs> but, you know, just to touch on that, I, I don't remember what site it was, but there's, there's millions of different farm pages on Facebook. And this one posted a picture of them this spring planting. And this lady commented, I don't know why you're out there with that gas guzzling machine doing all this work when you can go to Kroger and get your groceries. And was legit serious. <laughs> you know, there's, you know, 50 years ago, everybody was like maybe two generations removed from the farm. Mm-hmm. You know, now you've got families that it's clear back that great, great grandpa was on the farm. They're that far removed from it that, you know, they don't have just that basic, hey, that's where our food comes from. You know, to them, it's it's a flyover state. It's something that's green when they're flying over it. Hey, look at that. That must be like corn or some shit. I don't know. Who cares? We all take for granted where our food comes from. Other than, you know, having a garden and bringing in your cucumbers and whatever you grew. And everything comes from farmers. So unless you just hunt squirrel and eat acorns and shit you forage in the woods like we all are impacted by farming and should have a better respect of where it comes from and just the work that went into getting that food to us so i think it's pretty cool what you do i think it's pretty cool most days yeah that's what i meant some days are not so fun most days it's pretty (laughs) (laughs) but no uh, it's it's given us a good life i know that Caleb, you're the best. Love you. Thank you so much for joining me and um, just teaching me so much about farming. And thank you so much for what you do. Thank you for feeding us. Just know that you are appreciated and I'm, I'm really grateful for what you do. So thank you. Um, thank you guys for listening. I really appreciate it. I absolutely love doing this podcast. I want to do it forever. I want to do it full time and need to build the audience. So if you guys could rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast, that's how I'm gonna be able to get new listeners and keep growing the podcast and be able to keep doing this. So if you can leave a five-star rating and a stellar review, that would be awesome. And also just tell your friends, share the podcast with people. Also wanted to give a quick shout out to Brock Gardner. He has a podcast called Brock Gardner vs. World. He reached out to me a couple weeks ago and said that he has been listening and is really enjoying the podcast. And his is kind of the same thing, just talking to people he knows about different topics and incorporating learning new things with humor. I think Brock is incredibly smart. He's going to do big things. So wanted to just give a shout out to Brock. And thank you again for listening. Stay healthy. Stay safe. And until next time, hey, know what I heard?